episode 200. Um, me, Mark Raven, celebrating 200 episodes today. I'm Mark Raven. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth, and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For links and more information about my upcoming book and more, you can look for links in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake 200. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven. This is episode 200 of the series that started in September 2020. It's a big round number. So I thought we'd try to do something different today to celebrate 200. As I've, I've mentioned, I'm writing, I'm finishing a book on creating a culture of learning from mistakes. That book is titled The Mistakes That Make Us. And I'm joined today by my editor. He's also been a podcast host and a writer and among other things, Tom Ehrenfeld. I'm going to turn it over to him. Your show lets you play host. How are you, Tom? I am great. Thank you, Mark. Uh, okay, what an honor. This is really fun. Um, so I am not Mark Raven, and this is uh, the podcast, My Favorite Mistake, and I'm speaking with Mark Graven, a, a well-known lean book author um, on lean and many other topics. And Let's see, a current client of mine, um, Mark, I, I am helping you as editor on your new book. Uh, and thank the you mistakes for that. that uh, the mistakes that make us, um, it's that make us what? It's not a mistake, that title. <laughs> mistakes that make us. So, you know, this is diving a little in bit into the um, substance of your ongoing podcast, but uh, give a sense of what the book is about. Sure. I mean, you do raise a, a good question. I mean, we've talked about this. Maybe let, let, let me throw a speed bump in here. Like, I guess any title or combination of title and subtitle, you could end up thinking that was a mistake. I mean, I feel good about the mistakes that make us <clears throat> at this point. Um, I think back to one of my previous books where I think the title was a mistake, if I can for a minute before we talk about this one, a book called Healthcare Kaizen that I co-authored with Joe Schwartz. I think it was a great book. I think maybe for that audience in healthcare, the word Kaizen might have been a barrier to people saying, yeah, that's something I want to read. I'll never, I I don't know how I, I would know for a fact that was a mistake. I mean, I guess it's just a hypothesis. If we had come up with a title that was maybe more continuous improvement, because that's what the word Kaizen means. Um, I don't know. That might have been a mistake. You know, without wanting to, without taking us down a long path, um, digressive path, I've, you know, edited, say, 25 books. Um, and. I just feel like titles are really tough to nail down, that they occupy a disproportional amount of time on the part of the author and the whole team. 
and you struggle to find the right one. And I don't think there is an ideal one. I think the key thing, it has to do with what question you ask about it. I think this ties into um, the theme of your book. What are you trying to do with it? Uh, I think titles should be evocative, um, uh, um, elegant, short, and indicate to the reader what the book's about. And usually with business books have some aspirational quality to them to kind of um, present the promise of the book. And I, I, you know, I, 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 one person I've been privileged to work with is this guy named Jim Collins. Um, I edited some of his writing while I was at Inc. Good to great among other books. I think good to great is the paradigmatically perfect business book title because it tells people you're already good. So it appeals to what they want to believe about themselves and and often can. And it tells them how you're going to build on this state to greatness. Mm -hmm. And so I think he landed on something that had um, huge innate promise. And then he really fulfilled the promise of that title by sharing all this stuff that tells you how to do it. So, okay. So that's the title. Yeah. Tell us where the book came from. Like what, I mean, what got you interested in it? Why did you stick with it? And to keep piling on questions, what did you learn in the process of developing this stuff? So, so first off back to your question about what the book is about. Um, I I decided, you know, this is a book about creating a culture in a workplace. Um, So the one subtitle I'm not as sold on yet is, Building a workplace culture of learning and innovation. So there's an aspiration there. You know, I think it's very positive. Um, the tone of the podcast here, and I think of the book, has always, I've always tried to turn it into something positive to celebrate the learning, the growth, the adjustments that we make after a mistake, so we can either you know avoid repeating them or end up in a better place than okay. we had been beforehand, you know, when I've asked everybody here, 199 people in the plus the ones I haven't released yet, what's your favorite mistake? Like it's, it's a maybe a disarmingly positive framing, a favorite, like it gives people pause. And and I always give them an opportunity to think in advance. I don't think that's a question that's easy to answer if you're put on the spot. And I, and sometimes I have to gently correct people. They'll make the mistake of, of saying, hmm, my biggest mistake, and I'm like, well, that that's a different question, right? I think you know sometimes a, a favorite mistake is a, a whopper; it's a big one. But what's your biggest mistake might evoke more sadness or regret, where I think a favorite mistake is a story with more of a positive um, spin. So that's what I'm I'm trying to emphasize in the Can book, I, right? What I like about that is it's very forward looking. It's really framing this question around, um, you know, favorite means that you, I would assume, learn something from it and something that adjusts your inner compass as you move forward. Um, And, you know, what I really like about that perspective also is it doesn't invalidate what you've done previously. So in Mm -hmm. other words, like when you say celebrate the positive, can you also say what you're not doing like that seems very sure. a very countermeasure type of uh-huh. design in what you're asking yeah well and you know I, as i've been thinking about 
mistakes and the lessons that people have shared and some of the patterns. And we'll come back to your question of, you know, sure. why um, write the book. Um, I mean, as I type words and kind of read them, like they seem obvious. So here, I'm going to throw a thought at you and the listeners. And like, it seems obvious, but I don't think I've ever had anyone explain to me the idea of we make a mistake. That's only determined in some rear view mirror. Like if you do something or you yep. decide to keep the status quo, right? There are mistakes of action. There are mistakes of inaction. Anywhere from, I don't know, half a second, five years later, or some point in between, yep. you discover the mistake or the mistake reveals itself. Because, I mean, here's, here's the, thing, the other thing that seems obvious. Like, we, we wouldn't have made that decision at the time had we known it was a mistake. If we did, we might call that, like, self-sabotage or, you know, sabotaging our organization. Like, it was a decision we thought was good, but then we end up learning um, otherwise. So, like, I, I've been thinking, you know, people will say, oh, that was an unintended mistake. Like, well, that's redundant language. Of course, it was unintended. If it was an intentional act in a workplace, we we that might merit punishment. But you know, when it comes to mistakes and you know, quote unquote honest mistakes or human okay. error, like punishing <laughs> ourselves or punishing others doesn't seem like a helpful path forward instead of trying to learn and adjust and, and and move forward better. And I love the stories of the guests, whether it was after the first time or sometimes the second or the third time. I don't mean <laughs> to be laughing at them, but this happens, right? Mm -hmm. I've done it. Sometimes the lesson, the right lesson doesn't reveal itself right away um, so that we can study and adjust. Sometimes we figure it out eventually. Right. And so in some ways, mistakes can be seen as unintended consequences Right of assumptions that get proved um, flawed through experience, mm -hmm. and I, again, what I I, I I admire you have this generous kind of outlook, saying, "Well, what did you do? What happened? Mm -hmm. And how did you adjust?" And the emphasis seems to be on what people yeah. learned or adjusted. Yeah. What, what What do you learn? And we we hear that lesson. You know, you and I have our influences from Toyota people, so I can't help. But bring it there sometimes, and in the book sometimes, um, of of the, of the you know this kind of cultural norm and habit. There you hear it from so many different people, so many different times. When there's a mistake, when something goes wrong, the question is, what did you learn? And just to throw in one kind of current events, you know, the Super Bowl was a, a, a month or, or so ago, and there was this amazing post-game interview with Jalen. Hurts, mm -hmm. the quarterback for the Eagles, and he was kind of stoic, but he was his message was win or learn. Mm, that's and great. He kind of said this is just we're, we got to learn, and it's a kind of when loosely yeah. attached to his entire career. He's well, athletes, and I've I've been able to interview a couple of um, you know retired athletes on the podcast. They deal with quote unquote failure, and that's a word I don't like as much as I like, you know, mistake, winning and losing. Um, they deal with that far more often. You know, you have a bad play, you make a mistake, you, you've got to get right back out there for the next play. 
And then maybe during halftime, you have the opportunity to reflect and figure out how you're going to adjust or the the coaches are helping you with that. Um, You know, you lose a game within a winning season. Like I think there's more exposure um, to failures where, I mean, you know, maybe there's just no choice, but to realize it's going to happen. So yeah, let's learn. Yeah. And to quote Yogi Berra, um, I'm looking it up. Baseball is 90% mental. The other half is physical. There, there's another Yogi Berra quote. Um, we made too many of the wrong mistakes. Or, no, we made too many wrong mistakes. Something like that. But again, like, way to go. Redundant language. But, um, you know, one, one other thing on the Super Bowl. So back to this different and different unintended expectations. Right. So let me bring it back to my book, Healthcare Kaizen, for a minute. I, I could look and look back at it and say, I thought sales would be here. I thought the impact that it would have is up here. I think the reality was kind of disappointing that there was a gap. I don't know why there was that gap. It could be a number of factors. Maybe the title um, wasn't it. But um, at the Super Bowl, there was a different expectations gap. There was an expectation that this new type of grass they were using would be a perfect beautiful Super Bowl surface. And it turned out to be a slippery nightmare right? that the commentators kept talking about and the fans couldn't help but notice and players were commenting and complaining about. There was a gap in expectations. It'd be interesting to see how and where the NFL learns from that. But bringing it back to a point from the book, um, the one way we, one way embracing mistakes helps us is to use small mistakes Small tests of change. This is back to kind of Toyota thinking again and other realms of entrepreneurship. Small tests of change prevent a big, embarrassing failure. And it didn't sound like the players were able to go and try that grass in those settings, circumstances, and that stadium. Um, It seems like that was a missed opportunity to have learned earlier and on a smaller scale um, instead of having, you know, it was kind of an embarrassing. Right. Field surface for their biggest game of the year. Well, <clears throat> speaking of lean, um, like you, I've, I've done a lot of writing, editing and work uh, with lean. And I've always been struck by a couple kind of foundational beliefs at Toyota and, um, you know, earnest lean organizations, which is the framing of a problem is generally done deliberately as a gap between current state and ideal state. And in order to do that, you need to have an awareness of where you are and an awareness of where you're trying to go. And then you need to be very pragmatic in breaking that down further into ways to close the gap. And Likewise, with the book and kind of how you view mistakes, I get the feeling behind it, you're asking people to unpack their maybe tacit assumptions about what they're trying to do, their um, about what they're ignoring and how they are going about it. And if that's the case, I'm going to um, challenge you. Uh, d- uh, tell us a few stories that come to mind. 
mis- like uh, as in mistakes I've made doing the My Favorite Mistake podcast. I could. Well, that would be fun. I'm thinking more about guest stories that you think were, you know, sparked kind of revelations by you in terms of oh, I, I, you know, this person had a very kind of productive um, processing of what they did. I'm thinking about the the grain alcohol for one. You know, the brothers, the people who were making whiskey, Harrison Brothers, right. Thank bourbon, you. bourbon, not great. Little mistake there. It's okay. Wait, bourbon's not whiskey. Bourbon is a type of whiskey, and it, corn is a grain. So yeah, grain alcohol. Usually, people think of um, what would the uh, Everclear. They're not making that, but they're making bourbon whiskey. Yes, from corn. And um, yeah, so uh, you know, two people from Garrison Brothers came on the podcast together, and their stories are in the book, and I think they're intertwined. So, you know, Donis Todd is the the head distiller there. He he told a story um years ago and and there was still very much a startup distillery. They had product on the market, but they were still learning um to deal with Texas heat. It's a different climate than Kentucky and other places. And you know, so you know, Donis talked about the culture he tries to create within his team of we're going to own up to our mistakes. So with Donis as the leader of that team, he sets the example that he can admit a mistake and that he had you know, this, this group of 100 barrels that um, he let age, he chose to age them too long as it turned out, right? So he thought aging them longer would make them better. That will happen until it doesn't, right? So it's possible to overage a, a bourbon and you get too much barrel oaky flavor. What happened to Donis was letting it age into a hot Texas summer. And because of the extreme heat, there was more evaporation from the whiskey. So it's not that it was ruined. He just had less of it. It was a financial loss from rolling the dice and letting it age longer. Something I did the math. It was maybe a a $300,000 mistake of what they could have brought in as revenue from selling the lost bottles. And Dan Garrison, his founder and CEO didn't fire Donis, didn't yell at him. He said, well, okay, we were on kind of the frontier of learning here. Um, Dan embraced the learning. So then, you know, it kind of really does start from the top though, because then Dan Garrison is willing to share one of his stories of a mistake and Dan owns it. And, and you know, other other guests, you know, this is what one thing that's really impressed me is Owning the mistake and your actions instead of blaming others. Okay. Right. And there might be things that other people contributed, but you can't control that. You know, you can really kind of um, own and control your own uh, behaviors. You thought something good would happen and then something not as good ended up uh, as a result. Um, You can learn from it. You can try to figure out what went wrong, what the lesson is, what adjustments you make. And 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 Donis, in a very unprompted way, I went back and listened to his episode. I love to ask people, what did you learn from it? He yep. beat me to it. He was telling the story. And he's like, but here's the thing I learned, right? And there's a po- very powerful sense of, of that in an organization when the focus is on learning instead of uh, punishment. And I know right. that sets a good example for everybody on Donis's team, because like if, if you're pressured into hiding or covering up a problem, 
that could really, you know, pop up in a really bad way down the road. Or let's say, you know, you thought something might have been, I'm making up a scenario. I don't know if this is exactly true, but let's say you thought something was maybe a little bit um, contaminated somehow coming off of the still, but you're like, oh God, it would get in trouble. And you put it in a barrel anyway. And then a couple of years later, it's rotten garbage down the road. You would have rather not used that expensive barrel on whiskey that you thought was suspect in some way, right? So in, in, in all these settings, like creating an environment where it's psychologically safe, if you will. And I'll guarantee, like, as smart as they are, these great, great, great people at Garrison Brothers um, are not throwing around high-minded lingo about psychological safety in their workplace, but they have it, right? And And, and you can tell when it's there, you hear people describing that psychological safety where it's, it's safe to say I made a mistake. Um, it's, that's a very Toyota thing. Um, Kinexus, the software company that I've been involved with for over a decade has that culture. So there, there are different stories through the book and that try to help illustrate um, there are people reacting constructively to mistakes and focusing on learning. I think there's such a default that people get exposed to. I got exposed to early in my career that that the right way to react to mistakes is getting angry. Yep. Even in a subtle, passive aggressive way, or you know, you 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 punish somebody, and then that really only serves um to push people. They 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 get more creative and, and they, they get better at hiding their mistakes when we want them channeling that creativity into preventing future mistakes. And and I, I think that's the kind of underlying thing is that it feels like when you're saying that when a leader models this behavior of like embracing actual grounded experience and challenges people to like articulate what they were thinking um, that naturally frames the behavior in a, a learning mm-hmm. type of perspective and yeah. that it's almost natural for someone who leads in a culture or even just behave, you know, operates in a culture where mistakes are shamed mm-hmm. um, is going to lose the chance to better understand mm-hmm. what, what people are seeking and uh, adjust accordingly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and the flow of the book tries to sort of take, the reader through that. And, and, and I struggle personally with not shaming myself, being right. kind to myself when I make mistakes. And, and I think there is a necessary part of the journey where if a leader is not already in a place where they're reliably doing that, you know, it really kind of starts with um, maybe admitting mistakes to yourself, uh, being kind to yourself. And then maybe that give helps build the opportunity to be kinder toward others when they make mistakes, whether it's your colleagues, an employee, your boss, your boss might make a mistake. Um, how do you know? Not you bosses know. never. <laughs> no. But, um, you know, I think there, there's a little bit of that journey that goes from getting better at this personally, and I'm still working at it, um, to then kind of working through toward um, creating a culture that's, that's built around this, um, this, this embrace, you know, uh, cherishing mistakes or, you know, embracing the people who make mistakes as as a way of um, you know creating space for learning and improvement and not repeating 
the same mistakes. So if I can real quick, like one of the stories from a podcast guest, it's kind of a cautionary tale that I put in the book. Uh, it was Dr. David Mayer, anesthesiologist. And when he was a resident, you know, I'll kind of tell the short version of the story here. Um, surgeon who was also a resident um, cut into the wrong side of a patient for a hernia, hernia surgery. The attending surgeon was out of the room at the time and then came in and noticed that the resident had cut into the wrong side. So to me, that's the type of mistake in healthcare. It's such that's such a major mistake. We should be preventing yeah. that mistake. Because that really didn't it didn't kill the patient. But preventing it, it systematically instead of just uh, you know, one yeah. like doing error proofing in advance, doing something so, to prevent it. From happening, please. So there's yeah, there's so you know, pr- trying to prevent mistakes um, is is key. But I think there's there's also this lesson then of learning from the small mistakes and the near misses, right? So here's an organization that may have had an opportunity to learn from. Okay, we harmed the patient. It's unavoidable or undeniable. I'll come back to that part of the story in a minute, but um, that shouldn't have happened. But I would guarantee you there were the many, many times where somebody almost cut into the wrong side of the patient and it got caught. That more often than not, it's covered up. There's not a culture that encourages and makes it safe for people to admit, here's a mistake we almost, I mean, we made a mistake, but it, it didn't cause harm, right? right? Um, that's the missed opportunity. And that's where having higher levels of psychological safety allows people to say, hey, we almost harmed the patient. That's an opportunity for learning and problem solving and improvement to prevent the harm. But then the the, the, the other part of the story that um, David Mayer's anesthesiologist told that was powerful was um, the surgeon lied to the patient. Now, that, that, that's, that was more of an intentional choice, right? They lied and told the patient, hey, guess what? Uh, we found ter- two hernias, your lucky day, you got two for the price of one. Now, when does healthcare ever give you two for the price of one? <laughs> that should make you suspicious. That's that's a little well, sus. Maybe when in billing, they might bill twice as much. Maybe they did. But, but. you know, so so David was saying, you know, he he felt in hindsight bad that he didn't speak up, but he didn't, it wasn't safe for him to do so. It wasn't even a matter of not feeling safe. Like this could have been really uh, professionally harmful to him. But what, what made it a favorite mistake for David was that, you know, it opened his eyes to this whole dynamic. It inspired um, at this point, a pretty lengthy career of, of trying to help improve patient safety more broadly throughout healthcare. So that means not just making it safer for his patients, but mm-hmm. that that whole situation, even though it was uh, should have been prevented, it shouldn't have happened. The positive that came out of it was was the learning and the inspiration uh, okay. for for him. But we still have a long way to go in healthcare because it's not like that story from maybe thirty years ago is all in the rearview mirror. That kind of thing is happening today because you could say there's there's um, that lack of psychological safety and that lack of ability for people to to both speak up and then to have effective problem solving and effective mistake proofing um, going forward. So there's, there's, you know, stories like that illustrate the need for this, but then I try to follow up with, okay, well, here's, here's more positive 
uh, stories from other organizations where um, you, you can picture how it could be different um, so in, 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 in those settings, you know, how it could be better. You've mentioned psychological safety a few times. What, what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a whole, um, you know, if you look at the terminology and if not this discipline around what it means to have psychological safety in a workplace. Um, Professor Amy Edmondson from Harvard is most often cited, you know, her research and, you know, she would say she didn't coin the term, but I think um, she popularized it, if you will. And there's a lot of great research that shows cause and effect relationship. I mean, I, I mean, maybe statistically you can only say it's correlation, but the causation seems so clear that um, organizations with a higher level of psychological safety are more mm-hmm. innovative and perform better and actually have fewer errors um, in this dynamic of when you're safe, when you feel safer to speak up about it, good things can happen you know, as a result. So, you know, Amy Edmondson and, and, um, you know, she she would define psychological safety as, um, you know, a culture or a workplace where people feel safe to speak up without risk of being humiliated or punished or, you know, um, ridiculed in some way. And that includes the safety to ask questions. If you don't feel safe to ask questions, that can lead to mistakes that are preventable the safety to say, I don't know exactly how to do this. I know you told me four months ago, but I don't, I don't remember. Like a lot of times people are pressured into, um, you know, don't admit you don't know something. And then, you know, the ability, the safety to speak up and point out mistakes, you know, she emphasizes that, you know, really, and she's really, really strongly. Has conducted a lot of her research in healthcare settings. Yes. Um, and Google, there's a, a famed stu- study um, about Google, where they looked across all the different parts of the company. And it seemed like, I mean, it's not like, uh, I think uh, you would call it a regression analysis of like, what, what are the, what's the factor that stands out as different across um, different teams? And it was the level of psychological safety. Hmm. And, hmm. you know, you could say um, it, it's good that there was variation across the company. The level of psychological safety depends a lot on what leaders are doing. Are they modeling? And rewarding vulnerable acts like saying, I don't know, or I made a mistake. Like if that, if that had been uniform across Google, they couldn't have identified that as a key variable. Right. So some teams have generally, you know, felt, um, you know, it's, it's a feeling and a perception, you know, higher um, levels of psychological safety. It's not yes, no. It's kind of a, a spectrum of how safe do you feel to speak up as opposed to do you feel safe? Right. Let me shift gears uh, uh, from the general to the particular, um, in this case, you uh, talking about, I mean, you very good naturedly share mistakes of your own mm-hmm. uh, down to such small details as learning to create basically a checklist before you do interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, so what prompted that? Or, you know, I think it's, well, for one, um, the recognition that mistakes, certain mistakes are likely to happen, right? So you can be a little bit proactive. And, you know, I do write about this in the book. Actually, it's funny. I have more formal, a more formal checklist around webinars than I do for podcasts. But actually, no, I do have a podcast, not or a checklist, not for necessarily doing the interview, but for doing the production. 
to make okay. sure I don't forget a certain step. So I have a spreadsheet where for each episode, I kind of fill out, have I completed certain things? Because usually those things end up on the checklist because I messed it up once. You, so you don't have engineering in your background, do no, you? No, I mean, yes. <laughs> yes, two engineering degrees, so I can't help it. But I mean, you're almost taught, I mean, you are taught in a lot of ways to proactively think through the ways mistakes could happen, what mistakes are possible, what quote unquote failure modes, you know, it's a very engineering way of putting it to be pro proactive. So, you know, at Kinexus, we put together um, checklists of saying, well, here are things that could go wrong, putting it on the checklist. And you, if you're disciplined about it means, you know, you won't forget to do a certain step, um, but then you discover a new mistake that you hadn't anticipated and it can go onto the checklist, right? Um, you know, an outside presenter guest who thought the webinar was at um, two o'clock Eastern instead of one o'clock Eastern, or there, there was really, it was a time zone mix up is, is what caused that hour uh, gap. And so we scrambled and, um, you know, called and they were home. They just, you know, it's not, thankfully they weren't out at the store or out having lunch. And, you know, we, we, we caught the mistake quick enough to correct it. You know, the webinar started on time, but yeah. then that led to a couple of things on the checklist of, you know, one, well, thankfully, we already had the step of join 15 minutes early. So you have time to troubleshoot anything gone wrong. So we were proactive about that. That was good. Thankfully, I had the phone number, but we added to the checklist, make sure you have the presenter's phone number and um, you know some other checks to make sure. And now we send through Zoom. I mean, I think we probably did this more manually before. Zoom webinars will generate an email with a calendar invite that yep. adapts to the time zone. So sometimes, you know, technological changes can help prevent, you know, certain mistakes. Um, but then sometimes procedurally, you know, through, through a checklist, you, you can really, um, you know, prevent, I mean, look, I mean, I, I feel like I'm trying to have it both ways here, but uh, on the one hand, um, realize we're all human. We're going to make mistakes at the same time. We should try to prevent them. And then on the third side of, of that coin, well, but, when our prevention efforts fail, we need to react constructively to it. Well, right. So I don't want anyone to get the impression that it's just shrug my shoulders and like I don't care about performing well, that mistakes don't. Did you have me, but, you know. instances where um your guests weren't properly prepared or where you didn't yes. actually end up recapturing the recording of the event? Well, yeah, we I mean, were right. interrupted in the midst of um, yeah. a presentation. Yeah, and if those happen, how you know what happened and how did you respond? So there, yes, um, I think this maybe happened twice before it really kicked in. Of not blaming my guest for being unprepared, but realizing I needed to do a better job of preparing um, them. Um, because again, like it's hard to just try this at a party, like just drop this question on someone. Hey, what, what, what's your favorite mistake? Like you, you need some time to think about that in advance. Yeah. And there were a couple of times where um, we started the interview and I realized, oh, they, they, they think they're just showing up to a general business podcast where they're going to be asked the same questions that they always get asked. And they're going to just tell their story that they always tell. And one time I actually got through the whole interview 
before I realized, okay, that, you know, that didn't work. And I think part of what happened was not to blame them, but when there uh, is a, a PR firm in between me and the guest, I think mm-hmm. sometimes communication didn't flow through to the guest and I didn't check for that far enough in advance. Then I think it happened a second time and I actually kind of called time out and pulled the plug sooner as to not waste more of their time to say, okay, you know, like we, we, we didn't prepare you for this. Let's call a time out. Let me give you some time to think about it. And let's, let's try the recording again later. But then what I learned in terms of process and checklists is like the pre-call that happens with a guest before the interview, I originally framed that as being very optional. And then I realized, you know, when with the pre-call, when it's actually me and the guest, I can test if they've been properly prepared. And if not, then we have a conversation about the podcast, what it means, this question of a favorite mistake. Does that still sound good to you? Okay, you got you know a week to think about it. Great, we'll be ready for the recording. And, I, and I've had to draw a little bit harder line if, if you know, a PR firm says like, well, the guest is too busy, I'll do the pre-call with you. And it really is better if it's the guest. I'm only asking for 10 minutes of their time. I, I, I have budged on that sometimes for certain guests where I was, you know, it was either do it, you know, do it their way or don't have the guest. But I tried to be doubly sure to check, like they 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 know the question that I'm going to ask, right? Do they do they have an answer ready? And and I, I haven't really had that that mistake happen, probably more than a year and a half. Um, I think because of some of the, the the things I put in place, and then I think back to my guests and the example they set. I can look at what I could do differently instead of just blaming other people, right? And one quick interjection: it just again, it feels like there's this. Um, underlying takeaway which is the most valuable mistakes are the ones that don't happen that by kind of having these small failures or mishaps or what have you you've built in you developed a countermeasure you developed some initial pre-talk and since you put it into um, play you have not had these poor outcomes that you know, we're there. So it's hard to even, it's something I guess one stops thinking about. It's, is you know, about the benefits of not having mm-hmm. these flawed outcomes, not, not having them recur. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I've made other, I've been able to put other things in place, you know, back in episode 16 of this series, um, Jamie Parker, who had been one of my early guests, we turned the tables because I had sort of a near miss where I almost lost the recordings of seven different episodes. And the long story short of it was um, at the time I used a MacBook Pro and an iMac and files would sync. But I, and I and I had the, the the raw recordings on a portable external hard drive, like the old type with the spinning disk. And it's always it's not if that kind of drive is going to fail, but when, right? Yeah. And that drive only backed up to the cloud when it was plugged into the iMac and it had been gone and on the road and the laptop died and crashed and it wasn't backed up. So I, I tried, you know, following the lead of my guests, 
I, if I could own up to it. I reached out to those guests and said, you know what? I've had a tech failure, had a hard drive crash. I think I'm going to have to re-record. It turned out with like a $40 investment and some software, I was able to recover the files. The disk wasn't completely dead. And people were incredibly gracious and nice about like, okay, that sucks, but these things happen. We'll record again. I'd have to go back and look at emails. Maybe it was a seven for seven yes rate on you know the uh, the question of could we do it again but it turned out the the, the recordings are okay but I, I made a couple of changes so I said this iMac was long in the tooth I'm gonna get rid of the iMac just have a monitor and a dock so now I've only got one computer the MacBook Pro regardless of where I am and now um that issue of what computer is it plugged into so that it backs up properly that's gone. But then I also have some changes where um, I I, I keep the recordings on that local drive, which is being backed up continually to iCloud. It's going to time machine backups on an external drive. And it's also backing up continually to a different cloud service called Backblaze. So like the the, the universe would really have to conspire against me for (laughs) me to lose or almost lose files like that again. The interesting thing. Um, hearing you kind of process this retroactively is that there's almost two modes. There's how you process it emotionally and how you process it technically. And let's consider you an engineer by um, training. You've now detailed ways to prevent this from recurring, this this failure of like losing the material. But there's that emotional response, though, I think, when working with others of, of um, like, one thing I've learned, and I think, you know, I want to make kind of a standard practice for myself, and I might encourage others, is when someone's made a mistake, like, they're, they already feel bad. That right. can be guaranteed, whether they are willing to admit it, whether they feel safe to admit it or not. Before you jump into, let's say, root cause analysis and countermeasures, at some point, you got to say, hey, are, are you okay? Or, or as a leader in a culture to say, that's okay. You know, to be reassuring. Yeah. Um, I know you didn't mean to do that. Um, and sometimes you got to give someone a little space to process right. that. But I think if you react constructively, they can move through that pretty quickly because, you know, you, you want to do that reactive problem solving as soon as you can, you know, where, where it's still fresh. There's what and it happens. doesn't happen that often. You know, I, I do know that I've been in cultures where, um, bosses just treat you um suspiciously mm-hmm. if if you make a mistake mm-hmm. and they, they don't trust you and they don't about you know and yeah. it's it's i mean they're bosses they have to make things <clears throat> excuse me happen smoothly yeah and it's it that's a kind of impediment to them owning their own mistakes but um but Well, here, I was going to jump in and tell one other story uh, that that came to mind of mistakes that happen when you're trying to do something that you think is an improvement or, you know, trying to be somewhat innovative. So I had for a long time been recording episodes through Zoom. Zoom is fine, right? I mean, like the recording quality and everything, it's, it's fine. 
But there are many systems out there that would purport to do better quality recordings. And so I thought, well, let me try one of those services. And I'm not, I don't want to name names. It was fine. Like my first test of it worked great. I'm like, oh, the recording quality was better. Um, it's It was more robust against like little temporary internet hiccups because it actually recorded locally to each person's computer and then, you know, kind of uploaded and merged it. Now, solving, if you will, like the problem of Zoom quality not being really great caused a different problem that like, you know, at this point, September 2020, everybody knew how to join Zoom. Right. This other system required instructions and a certain browser and tests and a, a, a certain technical capability on the on the yep. user's part. Um, so there was that. But then there were some technical glitches from this other system where the quality of the recording was great, but the two tracks of me and the guest would get out of sync over time over 40 minutes. And that created kind of an editing nightmare of sure. trying to now get things to line up. And like, I, I, I don't want to do that much work. I don't want to pay someone to do that work. Maybe this technology is not ready for prime time yet. I went back to Zoom. But what I didn't do was, I mean, so, you know, I, I did a test. The gap between the expected outcome, the actual outcome was there. I don't hate this other company. Their technology's probably gotten better. Um, I don't hate myself that I tried doing something different. Like, okay, well, I, I went back to Zoom and it's fine. This just, you know, I've read, I want to say all of your books, if not all the most of them. <laughs> um, and there's a, a thread of experimentation and improvement um, among them all. Mm -hmm. And it feels to me like what you're really talking about is having this mindset of designing work as experiments mm -hmm. and then mindfully tracking, yeah. you know, you have a book on data, on, on the best way to use data. You have books on improvement and that this, again, mindset of improvement and learning is the most important and salient takeaway yeah. from processing mistakes. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good it's a good summary. And you know, part of it is a mindset. And you see this in entrepreneurship circles and you know, where where you know basically you you think about forming a hypothesis, testing your assumptions. Like there's a difference between saying, you know, I I have this solution that I know is going to work as opposed to saying seems like this is going to work, but let let's try it and see. Let's try it on a small scale. Um, let's let's do that test of change. Let's be open to the idea of I could be wrong. And right. if I'm wrong, so be it. You know, we learn something. It's better than being stubborn and continuing down this path. That would be a bigger mistake to not recognize a mistake early on and not and, being and able to admit it for whatever reasons. It, I mean, just to jump from that, if you look at that writ large, there's almost two ways to fund and grow startups. So you take a, an ideated success, a company that looks great on paper and throw lots of venture capital or whatever money and work like hell to make reality conform to what you've um, developed. And um, I worked at Inc., you know, magazine of entrepreneurship 
And the vast majority of companies that populated the Inc. 500 were started by people who began with need, who were in a market or an industry and recognized what was needed and then backfilled and then filled it in. And that that's a, and use that to, again, to to quote a theory of the the quarter principle, they put themselves in the quarter. So they knew which door to open. Mm. They, they positioned themselves to be opportunistic and um, responsive to opportunities that they discovered through being in the game. Um, But so, and it's a sermon. That's my little entrepreneur. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Because I know we we don't want to go out too long. Yeah, I was going to say we should go ahead and wrap up soon. We might make the mistake. I could talk. I have mistakes I could talk about all day long. So I'll try not to make the mistake of going too long. Let let me let me share though, um, just real quickly though, on experimentation. Right. Even the beginning of this podcast series was an experiment. Like I I got my first guest lined up, Kevin Harrington, and I thought, okay, if I'm going to interview him, I need to I need to hope this actually really becomes a podcast <laughs> series. I mean, I guess I right. could have taken the interview and published it in my lean podcast. I guess that would have been the backup plan to not waste his time and to help share his story. All I had was a hypothesis. I think I, I think I could find other guests willing to share a story of a favorite mistake. And then the related hypothesis is that these stories would actually be compelling and interesting because if first guests and the first couple, if it had been like one of these job interviews where there's the uh, the BS answer to the BS question of like, what's your greatest failure, greatest weakness, greatest weakness. And people I'm, would I'm say, too oh, hard, I'm, I'm too just, hard on myself. I just work too hard and uh, I don't take time for myself because I'm all work, work, work. And you know, if people had told favorite mistake stories that were some version of that, this might not have led to a compelling podcast series. I think it has been compelling because people have told vulnerable stories. And I appreciate that. And I think that sets a great example for others. So thankfully, that ex- that experiment, I think, turned out, um, I think that turned out okay. So I'm glad for I'm glad for that. But then one other mistake I think I made. Um, I, I love the phrase favorite mistake. And I give credit Cheryl Crow, her song, My Favorite mm-hmm. Mistake. And each episode is about a guest saying, well, here's my favorite mistake. That's, I didn't think about this far enough in advance. Um, it's a search engine nightmare. Like if you search my favorite mistake, you get Cheryl Crow's song, as you should. If you search my favorite mistake podcast, you can find this little podcast. But here's the little twist. Here's what I should have done. Um, I think maybe if I'd called the podcast Our Favorite Mistakes, some of that search engine confusion might not have been there. And it's still like collectively it's our favorite mistakes, but you know, I, then there's a question of like, well, mm, is it too late to make a change? I could be making a mistake and not making a change or making a change could be a mistake. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> um, let's, I'm going to suggest we wrap it up. But I think as um, host, it's my duty to remind people where to go. So where do people find the podcast? What's the title of your book? Where can they, you know, um, let you know that they want to purchase it when available? Yeah. So um, you can find, I mean, 
yeah, to subscribe or, or find the podcast in different locations, you can go to myfavoritemistakepodcast.com um, on the web, or you can find it in any of the podcast directories. You probably have to type My Favorite Mistake Podcast if it's Spotify, where they have music and podcasts uh, all together. And then the book, uh, the book is titled The Mistakes That Make Us. And uh, people can go to mistakesbook.com is uh, the place where they can sign up right now to, uh, if they want updates of uh, when the book is going to be available, if they want to get some previews and, and, you know, if, if, if they're interested in buying the book for when it's going to be um, available, I'll make sure people know, you know, how and where they can buy it. It's going to be a paperback and uh, ebook, different formats. And they'll be able to buy it in bulk because you're expecting people to buy a hundred, two hundred at a at a pop. Do a book club. Do do, but you know, buy one book. Uh, no, I'm going to undermine myself here. Buy one book is a small test of change, and if you like it, and if it wasn't a mistake, then sure, yeah, you can contact me for a bulk purchase. Because <laughs> I'm avoiding the. Um, mm, this is dangerous. I'm, 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 a, I'm, I'm. My company is the publisher. I don't like to say self-publishing. I've done that before. It's not a mistake to do it again that way. I'll just I'll I'll leave it at that. You're publishing it independently. I am publishing independently. That's a good way of saying it. So I have editors like Tom. I have cover designers. I have interior book layout people, copy editors, proofreaders. It takes a village to bring a book to market, even if they kind of make the mistake of calling it self-publishing. Writing is a team sport. Thanks for being part of the team. <laughs> uh, it's my pleasure. And we made it without mentioning our favorite movie, Spinal Tap. But this is Spinal Tap as the movie. Small mistake. See, I'm, I'm going to be kind. The band is Spinal Tap. There you go. There you <laughs> the go. movie, this is Spinal Tap. It is our favorite movie. Um, yeah, it's my favorite movie. I know you love it. Is, you, is it your favorite or a favorite? It's in my top five. Okay. It's in your top five. But um, uh, my friend Don, who I've known since elementary school, he's doing the cover design. He's a, a professional artist. He loves the movie. In fact, he had the VHS tape of the movie. That was the first time I saw it. And we still talk about it to this day. So um, Tom and I are going to do some sort of like mini series, either as a season within My Favorite Mistake or as a separate limited series. We are going to do a podcast about the mistakes made by the characters in the film, This is Spinal Tap. And Tom's made the mistake of wandering off. What, what are you looking for? <laughs> I have the um, Voyager DVD of This is Spinal Tap, which was this produced 30 years ago to play it on your computer. Um, and I was going to hold that up. I owned, maybe I still own that but yeah there's there's the whole universe of this is spinal tap with the deleted scenes and the commentary yeah. tracks but that is a movie where you know band members and and the record label and like the half of the comedy at least half the comedy is the mistakes that are being made so i think we're we're going to do a little series talking about some yeah. of those mistakes from yeah. the film this is spinal tap so that little teaser preview of that i got to get the book manuscript done first yeah please first things first <laughs> And then while we're uh, doing the marketing work around planning for the book release, this little little side project, uh, I mean, uh, what's what's one more podcast in the portfolio, right? There you go. Exactly. Could be um, a mistake, but maybe it's just you know, a limited series. We're going to pull in 
um, uh, Don. And then one of my guests, I haven't released his episode yet. Um, Ivan Bodley is a professional musician, a bass player. He loves, and he's lived many of the types of things that have gone wrong in this is Spinal Tap. So he's agreed to even, you know, come for an episode and, um, you know, talk about this movie we love and the mistakes that are made. And uh, boy, did they learn <laughs> from their mistakes? We'll, we'll obnoxiously try to connect it back to the book and uh, talk about the movie in a way that doesn't get us sued. I don't want to make that mistake. Okay. We right. will. <laughs> um, All right. Okay, so well, so uh, thank you, Mark. This is a lot of fun. Um, and uh, we'll talk again. Well, thank you for doing this. And I'll, I'll put links in the show notes. Um, tell tell people about the, the podcast that you have been hosting. I host a podcast that addresses lean and um, adjacent areas. It's produced by LAI, Lean Enterprise Institute. Um, I've worked with them for 15, 20 years. Um, and you can find episodes of it through the lean website, um, lean.org. Yeah. Or if um, people search for it in their podcast feed, it's WLEI. Is that still the name? That is it. WLEI. All right. Well, hey, Tom, thank you for doing this. And, you know, thank you to everybody for listening or, or watching. And again, thank you to, you know, the, well, since I was kind of a guest in my own episode, 198 guests who have come before me. And uh, I'm going to stop making mistakes so I can stop doing episodes about my own mistakes. How's that? <laughs> Fair enough. That works. <laughs> Seems unrealistic. <laughs> That's a solution. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being a listener, whether today is your first episode, if you've listened to every episode or someplace in between. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, if you are interested in learning more about my book, the Mistakes That Make Us, go to mistakesbook.com, look for links in the show notes, or you can go to markgraven.com slash mistake200. Again, thank you. Thank you, Tom Ehrenfeld, for um, leading the way on our conversation, the special episode 200 here today. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.